All right, everybody, welcome to Dojo Talks. We're talking about the best games, 1920 to 1972. We're pretending this is work, basically. We're trying to create model games databases for the Dojo training program. And so we said, hey, let's talk about the greatest games of all time to decide which games should be the games to memorize for uh, the Dojo tr training program. There was some bitter fights in the last one, which was up to 1920. And 1920 is a pivotal year because that's when Lasker hands off the title. Dude didn't even want to play anybody. They were just like, I've had it so long, I'm done. You guys take it. Then it was still crushing fools after that. So we're going from then to basically 1972. We all know what happens in 1972. Very interesting break. And chess really does, it's, it's a very interesting period. We could have broken it into 1920 to World War II. I feel like that's obviously a hinge point as well. In any case, this is a very big period with a lot of amazing games in here. We're gonna fight bitterly. David's gonna say something incredibly dumb and I'm just gonna have to swallow it. Kosia's gonna have to swallow it too. It's just gonna be like, what? In any case, <laughs> that's what we're doing today, my friends. And we are gonna, because uh, we wanna give some space for the games themselves we are just going to say our picks from 10 to 6 and then we're going to look at each of our games from 5 to 1 so we have some time to talk about those and i'm sure it will happen that if i say game 10 is x somebody might have that in their top five so a lot of the games in the lower tier will end up being actually looked at later so yeah, once again, for all of you uh, podcast listeners, this is like part two of our series. You're probably gonna wanna check this one out on YouTube if you actually wanna see the games um, that we're, we're talking about as we're ranking here. And um, let me just say my feeling for these shows, it's like our, our dojo training program is, is secondary to this. Like this is really important. <laughs> this is an important part of, of chess culture. And I really wanna make sure that we do these games and this period um, justice and um yeah hopefully hopefully we uh we don't upset too many hundreds of thousands of people like we did um in previous shows where we rank stuff we surely will though there's just too many good games there's too many good games. <laughs> yeah um all right well um i have some criteria that i was thinking about but i'll talk about it when we actually start the list mm -hmm. um so let's get into it any more disclaimers Go, Kosti, go. Give us your number 10, buddy. I'm starting? Sure. Okay. All right. Well then, let me, <laughs> let me just say uh, a thing or two about how I went about this list. It was very hard. Um, there's a lot of amazing players um, that have played in this time period, and they've had a lot of amazing games. I'm sure I'll probably um, leave some out. And uh, in general, for, for this top 10 list, um, what I really wanted to do was just choose games that like made a huge impact on me, uh, growing up that I remember learning about and studying and, um, games that I feel like were really influential. Obviously the game, you know, has to be like super well played. Um, I love Jesse's metric last year that it had to have become a cult classic. I think that's a cool way to look at chess games as well. Um, so yeah, I, I really tried to pick just all of my favorite ever games. All right, so um, without any further ado, 
Uh, my number. Yeah. Um, oh, and we talked about it before the show. There's a good chance we're going to be rearranging the order as we as we go through. But my number ten for now, for now, is uh, Botvinnik Capablanca, 1938. Um, so this was uh, this is a really famous game. I'm sure many people have uh, have seen this game. It's known as the the Bishop A3 game, and um, this was played in a famous. Avro tournament with a lot of like the world's best players, Botvinnik, Capablanca, Oiva, I think maybe Alekhine was there. And uh, at this point, 1938, Capablanca is definitely like ending his his uh, reign as like a super player and Botvinnik is like only just beginning. And it's an excellent game. I, I love it not just because of the combination, it's also just like this really well-played Nimzo and Botvinnik builds up a center and accepts a bad bishop. but ends up proving that this dark sword bishop is actually really strong and then just wins a brilliant game against uh, Capablanca and it kind of like signaled, you know, the beginning for me of, uh, of a new era. Okay, so we got a long show, so I'll keep it short. Uh, it's my number 10. Okay, cool. I put as my number 10 um, Bogolyubov versus Alyechin. Um, I don't know if the year is, is marked on it, but, um, I can figure it out later. Um, it's, it's an epic game. We're not going to see it today. I don't think, um, but, uh, it's got a long period of maneuvering and a really cute, uh, combination where Al Yechin lets Bogolyubov play rook takes the rook on a8, rook takes the queen on d8, and rook takes the rook on f8. Like like every single one of his heavy pieces gets captured in a row. And at the end of it, he's got a pawn that's threatening to promote on two squares because of the awkward knight. And so he gets a new queen at the end and then eventually has to sack that queen as well to break through and win. Um, the game is really epic from my perspective and it has a strategic phase which is interesting as well as a tactical phase that's kind of mind-boggling and uh yeah it's the kind of game which i think if you've played through it once you'll never forget it so it has that going for it um in terms of oh let me just say something in terms of my overall criteria for this whole show so yeah I, just my, um just hit enter david so it so it goes in so we can see it Okay, sorry. My brain is all all over yeah, the place this no week. Worries. But um, <laughs> in terms of my criteria, we're using the title Greatest Games, and this is basically like favorite games for me. If if I say like what the main criteria is on my list, it's just I'm putting games that are aesthetically appealing to me, um, which among other things usually means pretty good resistance from the player who loses and uh, usually means some surprising or unexpected ideas. Um, so those are two sort of basic components to the games I picked. Cool. Okay, I guess it's my turn then. And I'll say um, my three criteria, did the game make me cry? I know that sounds silly, but if it didn't, it, at some point in my chess development, did it make 
So I have like, was it so beautiful that it caused an emotional reaction on my part? Generally, if it made it, me cry, it also spoke to some kind of deeper sense of the game that I'm getting turned onto while I'm viewing the game. And then with that, like, did it make me cry more than once? Does it have a resonance? Okay, that's number one. Number two, does the game connect with other people? So just in the same way I talked about in the last show, uh, in the same way you have a book that can speak across centuries, you have games that can speak, in this case, across decades, or almost well, 100 years at this point, right? And when they connect with other people um, and those people explain what they're feeling while viewing the game, then and I can connect with them or share that sensibility, then right, that's another criteria for me. Um, and in fact, what happens is you end up getting reminded of these games because we're talking loads of great games here. It's very hard. The, the, there's like a common sense of memory about these games. And number three was the game played with gusto. Okay. I'm looking for somebody who played with some gusto. All Edit. Right. Brayden, <laughs> just take that sentence out. <laughs> I'm sorry, Brayden. All right, so uh, my number 10 and number nine, um, it's nice they kind of go together. Put in a robot voice that says Gusto or something over him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's nothing wrong with Sam, Gusto. my friend. There's nothing wrong with Sam. Gusto. Okay, we have Fisher Petrosian. These are, let me just say these are companion games. So this is Fisher Petrosian 1971. And then also Fisher Timonoff, uh, also 1971. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these games defined what we've come now to think of as the Fisher Endgame. No one said it in that way at the time. And um, what I wanna say briefly about this is, it was so deep, the idea of the Fisher Endgame that no one, that the six, like the people in the 70s, in the 80s, even the 90s, they didn't actually get it. Imagine that, like decades of players after it, this this period of matches happened, they didn't actually get it. And one of the things about getting it is, it's not just something you abstractly comprehend and say, oh, yeah, oh, Bishop's better, I get it. No, you have to be able to do it, right? You have to actually be able to prove it, and that's the hard part. And both of those games are next level in terms of proving what we're talking about. And both games have made me cry uh in terms of like this is something beautiful this is something i aspire to maybe can only briefly touch right with my ability um but so yeah beautiful pair of games uh and i'll leave it there so let's yeah. let's clarify jesse because fisher played a couple of games against both petrosian and timonov in 1971. <laughs> the petrosian oh, game much. that's mm -hmm. the famous like knight takes d7 game where he gives up a really strong knight is that the one you're, you're referring to Thank you very much for clarifying. Right. And that game uh, also in our program, we have Simple Chess by Steen goes over, has pretty interesting notes to that game. Actually, one of the things I'll say is interesting about the Steen notes, just to clarify what I'm talking about. So Steen likes this game as well, is interested in it. But and Steen writing, uh, I think, like late 70s doesn't get the bishop thing. He doesn't understand it yet. And it's almost like somebody later had to come along and say words like Fisher Endgame, because there was no words at the beginning, right? There was no words to be getting like, oh, bishop and rook, that's a real thing. Let's talk about why. 
Um, right. So I'm sorry about that. We'll find a way to clarify this later. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I know which games he means because they're both games mm -hmm. that I've that I've been looking at this week. Yeah. And I will say right now that Fisher Taimanov is my favorite of those two. Mm -hmm. And uh, just because it's longer, right? I, I like a longer game. Uh -huh. The Petrosian one, it's 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 over before I can really start enjoying it. Uh, well, no, that's 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 not fair. I did enjoy it, but Taimanov gives you more. Um, right now, I didn't put it in my top ten, and that's something that I'm going to have to shuffle at the end. Is I'm going to try to figure out a way to bump something and fit it in. So when we're rearranging at the end, I'm going to have to deal with Fisher Taimanov. But for now, I'll just keep presenting the games that I had planned to present. This is uh, a Spassky Petrosian game. Um, I don't know the best way to tell you what the game is without showing it. Toasted, do you want to just click through the game super fast or something? I'm I'm not sure how else um, to tell. Yeah, people yeah. Is, is it uh, 1966 or which year is it? It is from 1966 and it's a game that Petrosian wins with black yeah, I know, the, I know the game you're talking about. <laughs> against a Tory attack. You like this game too? Yeah, yeah, it was it was considered uh, for me. <laughs> let me let me okay. put it into the uh, our board. Okay, and while you do, I'll try and just say one or two things about what's phenomenal about this game to me. First of all, a lot of the games that I like are going to be games that I couldn't replicate a lot of the time, right? Are going to be games where it's just like, how do you do that? And um, how to play against some of these Londons and Tory attacks as black, more than just holding the balance, but but how to create a game out of them is something which has often eluded me um, or, or just consistently eluded me. Um, this game, he castles queenside and you get this opposite side attacking idea, but then it's blended with this idea of space. Like in the end, the way he wins this game, including with material sacrifices and, you know, pressure against the king and everything, but he basically slowly somehow squishes white off the board. Like he takes over space and limits the white pieces. Um, and to me, this game is pure magic. Like you, you look at a point where um, if, you, if you go way further ahead, there's a point where he's sacked and exchanged and the pawns sort of come in contact with each other. Um, so yeah, I just see. wanted to say um, this game is yeah. pretty well known for this c4 moment. Yeah, because Petrosian gives up the d4 square, which like mm -hmm. strategically just looks uh, horrendous. Obviously, you guys know this, but just for, <laughs> for the audience. Um, and then, but yeah, his genius is that number one, White has to stay defending the e pawn, so he can't really use the d4 square. But even if he gets there, the knight just kind of looks pretty, and uh, he's like completely blocked off the the queen side. So Spassky has has no attack there with this classic right. wherever you push, I'll push, uh, push past. Um, yeah. Okay, but yeah, keep going. I'm gonna try to find that. Uh, yeah, so he plays sack. sort of normal moves building up like an attack, but then this exchange sack ends up being not to open lines, right? Now he's not opening lines. Instead, he's just dominating space. And then one thing that blows my mind is like, if you're the person with the extra exchange, the classic recipe is you break with E4 and you get your rooks into the game, right? And that Petrosian can just absorb this e-pawn, just let it sit there, not, right, he just leaves d5, lets it get taken. That really 
really blew my mind that he could mm -hmm. just let white do that and the rooks would still never find purchase I couldn't have predicted or seen that coming with my sort of stereotypical way of playing chess. You know, it just it just makes you seem seem like a hack when you see this and <laughs> and and compare it with your gut reactions of what moves you would play as black. Okay, yeah. boss. Are you showing this game or not? This is is it your top five? What are we doing? We're always showing top five, buddy. What are you doing? Oh, well, it's been shown. <laughs> it's just so beautiful, Jesse. It's There's a lot of so beautiful good. games to look at. Come on. <laughs> yeah, uh, great game. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely I had it on my list, and then all these other games came up. I know, just, but it's literally like number eleven or twelve for me. Um, amazing okay. game. Uh, I guess I'll go with my number nine, um, which is a game that I think will be familiar uh, to most, because I also have Fisher Taimanov in my <laughs> number nine spot. Okay. I might end up changing it, because the way Jesse talked about the game made me appreciate it even more. <laughs> but I'm mm -hmm. going to stick with my original list for now, and then we might um, we might flip them over. But yeah, I've got Fisher Taimanov. For me, this is like such an amazing game. Fisher, he shows like the power of the rook and bishop, but also just like the stages of that endgame is just like so well played. He like induces all these weaknesses. He outplays with the rook and bishop. Then he finds the exact right moment to trade off the rook. And then outplays with the bishop versus knight. And then eventually sacrifices the bishop for three pawns. And then wins this like beautiful pawns versus knight mm -hmm. endgame. I mean, it's just, and there's like yeah. so many zugzwangs. I mean, it's just like incredible game. Um, okay. That's that epic. That's that epic element. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not to mention, right, he does this during the 6-0 the match. And, um, yeah, just shows just shows how uh, how good he was. Um, all right, and then my number eight game is... Um, this one. Yeah, I think um, you guys might have it higher on your list so we'll probably we'll probably see it possibly but uh number eight for me is tall versus hecht um there's a lot of amazing tall games you know that i looked at this this week um he, he's just like a genius he's got a number of fantastic games i really like this one um for anyone that you know doesn't ring an immediate bell it's basically a very nice queen sacrifice he sacrifices his queen on a4 in order to open up the center and um, he just gets this like beautiful compensation with the minor pieces ends up winning the queen back and then has to like win this like very kind of small advantage um, end game um, so yeah for me this game represents like a lot of his other games because obviously he just has so many brilliancies and uh, not every game in the top 10 can be a tall game so if everyone could just pretend like this game you know is like is Mikhail tall is is receiving the award yeah for all the all the games right it's like anyway uh great game this game's not on my list right now though again the shuffling period it is my favorite of all the tall games oh, that i looked at this week and i looked at five or six of them and i think the reason is because there's this wonderful rook end game as well <laughs> as mm -hmm. as a dessert after <laughs> the queen sack <laughs> and the the mad tactics and all that um yeah, we'll take no, a look at this I game. This game will come up later. We'll definitely look. All right. Cool. Okay, then it's um, David. 
then to me for number eight, here's a game that Kostya turned me on to. Um, Geller versus Elva. Um, I think it's from 53. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, this is a, a game. It's perhaps the shortest game on my list. Um, it has, uh, it has this blend of strategy and tactics. That's kind of, uh, incredible and, and a little bit dizzying and, uh, uh, it also has, you know, a surprise move in it. Um, very nice rook sacrifice and a counterattack. A lot of games that we've talked about so far, you know, somebody had the advantage and, and pressed somebody else, whether it be tactically or strategically. Um, but this game really has that back and forth dynamic, right? Like white's trying to kill black and black's ready to respond by killing white. So... Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, I hadn't remembered exactly this game on my own, but it kind of electrified me when, when you guys put it in the in the document. So there it is. Yeah. Oh, and apparently it actually won the brilliancy prize from the Zurich 1953 uh, mm -hmm. famous famous candidate tournament. So, not bad, not bad. Yeah. Hopefully it's not too simple or too brief to be on this list. I, I, to me, it was exciting. Yeah, yeah no, it was, one, it was one of my candidates. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely on my list. Your turn, Jess. Cool. So I guess I didn't plan it this way, but these next two games also kind of go together. So um, we have at number eight, we have uh, Fisher... I didn't realize there's a lot of Fisher here. Um, <laughs> a little bit. I, I didn't plan it that way either. I was just, these are just the games that I picked. It's Fisher Spassky game six. And I'm just going to list both and I'll talk a little bit about uh, both in common here. So then we have Spassky Fisher game five. From the moment of your 10th pick, Jesse, somebody in chat immediately asked if you were going to give us 10 Fisher games. <laughs> it's not going to be 10 Fisher games. That wasn't my intention. I was really looking, looking at all these games. So um, let me just say, uh, you know, as a kid who grew up with a big fat book of Fisher games, the Fisher Spassky games as a kid were a little bit elusive to me and I didn't necessarily connect with them. Um, and in particular, like game six, uh, let's let's just take them one at a time. Game six is starts off and it just looks like this dry thing. Fisher's playing d4, very irregular. Of course, he switched it up against Spassky in the match uh, after playing e4 for years. Openings don't matter that much. Thank you very much. He outplays Spassky in a way that it's. It might it could be called perfection. Spas this is the game. Supposedly, I think there's video of this. Spassky applauding Fisher after the game. Beautiful domination. Then Bishop. How do you play Bishop versus Knight? How do you centralize? How do you finish a dude off? It's all in there. Game five. Game five has made me cry a bunch of times because we get this idea of Knight G6 doubling the pawns in a very anti-intuitive way. And... It takes a a lot of to do it. Edit that out, Braden. And then <laughs> it takes a lot of Gusto. to do it. 
and then like to understand why, why it's plausible even, nevertheless, just speak about good. It takes a long time. And for me, looking at it now too, I'm like, I don't know about, I don't know. And then I go through it and I'm like, oh yeah, I see the depth now. I see the depth. So it's like one of these games where it made me cry and then I'm reaching out into this sublime field that's beyond my understanding, but I feel I can stroke it a little bit. Not necessarily I can have enough command over it to play like that myself, but to just touch it, <laughs> just touch the beauty from a distance. So there it is, uh, game six and game five. Yeah, um, so yeah. before we move on, you know, I, I thought this might come up. I thought we might have a few Fisher games. Um, and I was worried people would criticize us for having like a very um, American bias, like by having a lot of Fisher games. But I just got to say, my list isn't as Fisher heavy as uh, Jesse's seems to be. Um, but uh, Fisher was the best player until 1972. I think that's a reasonable point of view to have. And uh, it's logical that he's going to have a lot of good games. <laughs> and he did have a lot of good games. <laughs> so yeah, um, we, we should also mention, we discussed last week how we don't, you know, really just kind of evaluating Fisher as a player and uh, there's nothing to do with his life outside of chess. But um, yeah, I just wanted to mention that again for this episode. Yeah. Um, so my number seven, here's a chance for me to say something about these two periods that we've considered last week and this week. So when we considered the games pre-1920, I basically figured that if I just looked at all the games that Lasker, Alyekin, and Capablanca played between 1910 and 1920, I would find most of the best games from the years zero up through 1920. Because the game quality, it, this is my view from last week, but the game quality had improved like fairly dramatically towards the end of that period. Um, and those three kind of stood out ahead of other players of their time. There was a pretty significant gap. Um, oh, and the other one was Rubenstein, who I also looked at seriously. But I thought, like, if I look at those four players thoroughly, I'll catch most of the best games. Um, and, of course, you know, there were a couple other games that were in my mind from, you know, earlier romantic periods um, and some games that you guys suggested too, but that I could really focus my efforts there. Now, when we consider the period 1921 to 1972, one of the thing is, even though Fisher is the best player and has multiple games on this list, you've got at least, at least 20 players, maybe 40, who are creating just immortal works of art, mm -hmm. you know, that, that could bring a tear to, to Jesse's eyes, right? I mean, you've got a lot of people who are capable of playing just an incredible game. Um, it's hard not to stack this with Fisher games because he was the best, but then it's also, there's, there's dozens of players who could each have a game on this list. And right now I'm gonna give us one of these. Um, this is my hero. Uh oh, Polygasty talk. Uh oh, oh my hero. Oh, that's a good game. Yeah. yeah. Getting absolutely <laughs> clobbered by Rashin Nezhmetinov, and I think one of the things that Polygasty is quoted as having said after this game is like, "I would trade my seven 
strategic and positional wins against this guy for this one <laughs> game that he beat me with, right? He'd give up six points in the tournament standings. Maybe his lifetime score against, against Nezhmetinov was good, but he would give it all up for this one game. <laughs> um, and uh, this game is featured in a really excellent Eric Schiller book that I got my hands on as a kid in which he teaches you to analyze a chess game by just going through this one game and giving you tons of questions, right? So he just gives you a suggestion, says, is this good or bad? Is this good or bad? Like analyze this variation, put an evaluation on this thing here. And it's like a, it's like a lab workbook, right? And he just like runs you through the paces of like doing all these things. By the time you've answered all his questions, you would have 50 pages of analysis written about one game. Um, so uh, I think I'm probably biased in favor of this game because of how much time I spent on it and how much attention and that it's not just a game that was revolutionary for me, but it was an analytical practice that was revolutionary for me at the time when I did it. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it was very important in my chess development is probably when I studied this game, it was the longest I'd ever studied any one game up to that point. Um, but I think it's a fabulously rich and, and interesting game. So, yeah, maybe, um, maybe describe it a bit. I mean, this is like, uh, this is like a pretty insane, like King's Indian game, right? Mm, yeah. It's, uh, maybe technically an old Indian. Right. But, um, you know, something like C4, D6, D4, E5 kind of deal. Um, so Black whips up a little bit of an attack, a little bit of pressure, and uh, gets the queen into the king side. So Polgayevsky, who has a dominant central position, as in a lot of, you know, King's Indian or Old Indians, he just moves his king up into the center of the board. And as you know, sometimes that's fine. Sometimes you just dominate all the space and... You know, your king walks to a different area of the board and, and you're okay. Um, and uh, then he traps uh, Nezhmetinov's queen on, on h2 and Nezhmetinov just sacks a rook while leaving the queen hanging. He doesn't take a pawn for his queen. He doesn't take the rook on h1 for his queen. He just leaves it hanging. And, and then afterwards, what he has is he doesn't have a bunch of checks or checkmate threats. He has a king that's just stuck like he's got all the squares around the king attacked so the king's stuck on like d4 with every square around it attacked and it just has to sit there and um and uh, the variations are bonkers and eventually uh the king got checkmated yeah yeah sick game absolutely beautiful um Okay, well, shall we shall we keep going? Let's see it, Kosu. What do you got? Okay, here we go. Uh, my number um, seven pick. Oh, how about that? That's uh, okay. Quite a coincidence. Um, is <laughs> uh, a different game by the same player, uh, Nezhmedinov uh, Chernikov, mm -hmm. which is perhaps uh, Nezhmed's maybe most famous game that people uh, I would imagine are familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the year is 1962. Uh, it's called uh, Nezhly Dunn on chessgames.com, which is very funny. 
and, uh, and we'll, yeah, we'll cover we'll cover this one. We'll cover sure. it later. I'm sure. Yeah, uh, I just I'll just say this is a game that's well known for Nejmet's uh, queen sacrifice. He sacrifices a queen for two minor pieces, gets pure positional compensation, and then just slowly outplays Chernikov, start to finish. I don't even want to say outplays. Like his position just plays himself, and it's just like a beautiful. Um, demonstration of the the power of the pieces but um okay i think we'll talk about it later i'll go straight to uh my number six pick which is uh taimana of nidorf 1953 and i think someone in the chat just called me out for saying i'm gonna pick this game so well done well done <laughs> yeah and uh, you guys were saying that geller oiva won the brilliancy prize but my recollection was that one won the brilliancy prize um you might be right i was just reading something that someone said in twitch chat so mm, not okay. the best source of information <laughs> but I don't, I don't know for sure um this game is really well known this is uh, a really well played king's indian but i gotta say um this game the credit for this game 100 percent belongs to svetazar gligrich um, who's the true inventor of the, the Martel Plata um, variation. Because what happened just a few months before this game, Nidorf played white against Gligorich. And Gligorich basically invents like the King's Indian Martel Plata attack, like the famous Rook F7, Bishop F8, Rook G7 maneuver, the famous Knight H8, Knight F7 maneuver, basically just comes up with this setup over the board, destroys Nidorf in, in really nice style. Um, Nider, I mean, just just a fantastic game, and uh, and then Nider's like, wow, great job. <laughs> a few months later, plays like the exact same plan against Taimanov, and uh, just just wipes him off the board um, as as well. So Gligorich is really the true genius that came up with this attacking setup. Nowadays, like uh, these types of games are, are super mainstream, um, but uh, but of course uh, the Taimanov Nidorf game, I think, is. Um, I don't know, deserves this spot over the, the Nidorf Gligorich game. Just my, my personal taste. But, you know, they can they can share the, the reward. I hope that's okay. Ostia, what's the King's Indian game from 1953 where Black Lake sacks a queen and the white king walks up the G&H files? Oh, shoot. I remember that game. That's, I the, feel that's, like, the, that's, uh, that's the Kodov game. Yeah, Kodov was white, I think. No, Against someone Kodov was black. Maybe he was black. Yeah, I feel like Kodov was involved. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's a pretty that's a pretty cool one. All um, right, David, what do you got? Yeah. Kotov okay. Averbach, maybe. Yeah, that sounds right. Okay. My Kotov. number six is one that's already mentioned here, so it's easy. Don't know don't need to say too much. Fisher Spassky, game six. Bishop versus knight, strategic game across the whole board. Um, nice opening prep, of course. And, uh, you know, Jesse mentioned something earlier about the Fischer-Spassky match, how it took him a, a little bit to really get into that match. Um, I think the match is disorienting for almost everyone other than Fisher, because... He played so many different strategic concepts. Like every single game, he's just bringing new strategic concepts. Spassky never, I, I think Spassky was confused. Like it was hard to keep up because the guy is playing like different stuff mm. every game and you're switching gears nonstop. Um, 
I think it was it's very, very challenging. I mean, and the guy's playing a different opening every game. And I think up to that point in in history, there are not a lot of people playing tons of different openings. Like basically Fisher's, for example, somebody whose openings were pretty reliable before uh be up to nineteen seventy one or something, right? Mm-hmm. Um and a lot of people, they were E4 people or they were D4 people. You know, if, if Carriz and Geller played, you knew that they were going to play a Spanish. Like, you know, you, you just knew people had their had their repertoires, right? Nowadays, in the modern days, you look around and there's very few players over 2,700 who have a set repertoire, right? Versus just sort of playing everything and studying things nonstop and hitting and running with different opening surprises and so forth. Um, but Fisher pre chess base, as well as pre engines managed to suddenly know how to play every single opening in the world at a world championship level, right? Like there's knowing how to play an opening and there's knowing how to play it at a, at a super, super level, right? I mean, I could just sit down tomorrow and play the queen's gambit, except it as black. And I might play it better than a 1200 or better than a player from 1800, but you, there, there'd be a lot missing, right? And Fisher, he just comes out, he's playing every opening, and he's playing every single one at the top level in the world. And that had never been seen before. So um, I think I, I just wanted to say that about that match. It was like, it's crazy how many different tools mm-hmm. and weapons he was a master at. Um, so there we go. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. It speaks to like this best games list in general, because obviously for the viewer, you you have to have some kind of appreciation of the game. And a lot of times there are many moves which just go over our heads. Right. So that I think you put it well, like there's that whole match where you have games that are hard to understand. And then, of course, on this list, there are many games where you know, they kind of go to the limits of human comprehension. And to be a fan of those moves, you at least have to have an inkling of what it's about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I guess I get two in a row here with this snake system. Number six. I have a feeling I might be alone in this one. This is a kind of amazing game. This is the only correspondence game I'm going to guess is on this list. Mm. This Estrine Berlina. 1965. This is a two knights defense. Black wins. Uh, David would appreciate that it ends in a rook endgame. Uh, I do appreciate that about this game. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This game, really stunning for the, let's say, the open board tactics and attack that Berliner uses. Basically, you could say punishing the fried liver attack. Um, but it's deeper than that. There's a lot going on. And we don't, I don't, let me just say I'm not a fan of correspondence chess. Even before the computer, I disregarded it as a thing. Um, but this game is like, oh man, it's, it's like if you wanted to argue for the merits of correspondence chess, I think that's like the game you would point to, right? Very fascinating game, and then number five, and I guess. Oh, just let me let me yeah. just say, yeah, I yeah, I really consider this game strongly because I agree with you. I think it's an amazing game, and mm-hmm. um, 
it's an amazing correspondence achievement too because 1965 you know no engines people analyzing by hand right. obviously but yeah for me it was just like there's so many good games played over the board that i was like all right correspondence separate category just can't can't mix it in uh -huh. Uh -huh. that was my, yeah. my feeling on that but i, but I think it's a thing, perfectly Jesse. valid pick i thought the game was absolutely phenomenal i love the c takes b6 move in the rook end game <laughs> as well as the tactics at the start but I just didn't know how to evaluate when someone's got three days for a move versus three minutes for a move. Like, I wasn't uh -huh. sure how to compare. Like, the quality is obviously better than all the other games. Like, you well, know. I don't know about that. I don't. But anyways, okay. It's not obvious to me in any case. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, the game, the game's incredible. I mean, it's played at an, yeah. at an unreal level. Um yeah. But what if you gave Nezhmedinov three days per move? <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe he tried. It wasn't for him. Okay. So now we're going to move into the games that we're going to talk about some. And so at number five here, uh, I've got Burn Fisher, 1963. Okay, and we're going to get into it a little bit. This game definitely made me cry. By the way, some talk of like an American bias. I wasn't thinking about Fisher at all when I did this list. I was just thinking about the games that touched my soul. You never crossed my mind. I kept looking up these games I liked, and it turned out he'd played them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let me just do this. One of the things Jesse's about definitely getting roasted after this one. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, let me just, okay, I'm going to go to a small rant. Um, there are some fools out there who want to like say, oh, we can't talk about Fisher because he said some weird stuff towards the end of his life. No, I need you to appreciate that the madness of the man is related to his chess genius. You can't have his angels and then also take his and not have his demons. They're one and the same. No one understands exactly what the neurological problem was, but it was related both to his genius and to his deficiencies. A great book, if you're interested in going down the rabbit hole, is John Donaldson's book. I did a review on our Chess Dojo channel. Amazing. Uh, I, and so I just want to say, you can't cancel the dude just because he said some weird stuff later. And I want to stress the weird stuff is related to the beautiful. Okay, here we go. Let me flip this board. Actually, Kosi, you might have to flip it. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it looks like just a nothing burger game at first. And seems like most chumps would look at this position and say, oh, it's just equal and nothing much going on here. <laughs> okay. So, Guidi 2, very natural move. Bam. Okay, normal. No, there's nothing too fancy. Now, here's the thing that where we start getting to the next level. So the issue with Rook FD1 is that we are not defending the F2 square. And of course, for most chumps, that's just not something that's immediately evident. 93, okay. Queen C2. Pop! Here we go, baby. Here we go. Pop, check to the miserable king. Got to go back to G1. Snip. All right. Now, at this point, you could say to yourself, White's still fine. He's fine. Watch this one, buddy. Bam! Oh, no. <laughs> uh, oh, no. Now, at this point, I think, too, we need to pay homage 
to our last list with Rubenstein, or excuse me, wrote Levy Rubenstein. Okay, because this game I feel has a lot in similarity to that. There you have the two bishops killing the white king. Here we're going to see it as well. Boom. Bishops are opening, my friends. Check to the miserable king. Oh, no. Queen d7. Takes a lot of, I can't, I guess I'm not allowed to say gusto, anymore, but this is gusto. <laughs> this is gusto. We did not take the rook. We took the bishop because we wanted the light squares. Check to the miserable king. Sorry, son. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Checkmate. What yeah. a game. What a game, dude. Yeah. Yeah. This is actually my favorite fishery game. Um, uh -huh. It's it's not on my list, unfortunately, because I just felt like there was just, I don't know, better games. I love this game. Um, I think actually Burn resigned after queen d7. Yeah. In view of this variation yeah. that you just showed. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, and, that Fisher wanted to get to play. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, who wouldn't? And I think the, the story goes that the commentators were like, they thought Fisher resigned because he's like down material after Queen. D. They didn't realize like West right, 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 just right. lost here, which is uh, amazing to me. Um, and I, I don't know if you mentioned, but this was part of his uh, famous 11-0 US Championship where he had right. a number of uh, fantastic games. So, And let me also say just on the subject of Fisher, that's mildly interesting about this game is in my view of Fisher, you know, people talk about, you know, Fisher fans love to talk about Fisher being the greatest and I'm not arguing that. And on this list, what I want to say that for me with Fisher is Fisher is not number one in the world or even close in the early 60s or late 50s. So this game, he's not even, I mean, really, you got to talk about just this one period of time for when you talk about Fisher being the greatest being, you know, 69, 70, 71, 72. These earlier, this earlier period, he's still inconsistent and playing a lot of chump moves. You know, I did a video about that with one of his games against Gligridge, for example. But in any case, fantastic, beautiful game. Next level. All right. I'm done. Woo. David. Yeah. That was a that. that was a whopper of a game. <laughs> it 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 also tells you how far things have advanced when you hear this story that the GMs in the commentary, they were grandmasters, thought that black would resign. I mean, did they not see how angry the bishop on B7 was? It's like <laughs> Our our understanding has advanced, right? Like, you yeah. know, I'm I'm not even a, a chump GM. I'm a chump I am, and like I see that bishop on B seven, and I know it's angry. You know, like yeah, you don't need a I know black's not to resigning. See that, that black is winning here. <laughs> well, then I mean, and uh, let me just say, uh, in, in view of that story, I I really disagree with the prevalent opinion. I guess, and this is this is the majority opinion now is that chess commentary is better with engines. How could that be? How could that be? Oh, wouldn't you love to see these chump GMs saying, <laughs> saying that Black resigned? Oh, no. Yeah. It gives you the human perspective. Absolutely. But now there would be people, if you do the commentary without the computer and you're saying uh -huh. that Black's going to resign, there'd be somebody in the chat room calling you a chump, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, that's part of the, that's part of the job. That's part of the job description. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um all right my number five is probably not on your guys's lists it's a pretty obscure game i think 
Mm -hmm. But um, I loved it. It's uh, Rachmir Kolmov against David Bronstein. And you would think that David Bronstein would be one of the geniuses from this era who would get in to our list as somebody, you know, on the winning side of one of these games. He's not. Rachmir Kolmov is going to take this game. <laughs> and um, it's an open Sicilian. And Kostya, can you just take us to move 15 with um, with the F pawn on F6? Yeah, actually, I think you have control, so you just did it. I have control? All right, I'll do it. So here we get a typical, um, you know, rush between G5 and B4. Kings are on opposite sides. Everybody's attacking everybody. By its nature, an open Sicilian of this kind is going to be tactical, right? So if you ever win a game in one of these positions, you're pretty much going to look like a genius Every time you lose, your opponent's going to kind of look like a genius. That sort of happens a little bit. Um, but, uh, okay. So, let me show you. First of all, takes here. He's threatening. I mean, he's he's leading the knight on c3 hanging. He's not threatening checkmate because of knight g6, but he's threatening to take the bishop, going after the dark squares. Anyway, black takes it. That's a good defensive piece. Rook check here. Queen comes in. Queen e7. All right. Just just try and guess why it's next move. I mean, unless you've already seen it. <laughs> I looked at this game this morning. Uh, wait. <laughs> yeah, I remember. I remember. It is a good move. Knight on C3 is hanging. Bishop on F1 is looking kind of useless. We somehow want to get this rook over here and play rook G7 or something. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe maybe, maybe uh, rook D3 yeah, would be a genius move. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Maybe there's more than one genius move possible here. But look at this. Pop! Oh! What? <laughs> Over on the queen side, and for what purpose? That was that was one of your good pieces, dog. That uh -huh. was one of your good pieces. He just gives it up. Why? E5. What? <laughs> What's the guy doing? Uh -huh. Well, okay. It doesn't get captured, but check this out. If the knight takes back on E5, it was all a clearance sack for the dead dude on C3. And then pff, it collapses. So in the game, Bronstein sees it coming. He's he's seen a clearance sack before. He knows. By the way, there's. Uh, let me just say, David. There's another one. If we go back, there's one move with the sure. bishop takes. Now, I think the intention after bishop takes is f6 and then bishop d3. Mm -hmm. F6, queen can't take because of mate. So you got to put the bishop there, and then bishop d3. Sure, or knight e4 again, right? I mean. Knight might work. I like Bishop D three getting everybody involved. But yeah, yeah, I know you do. I know you do. That's good. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. No, there's there's a massive variations, but I'm not like I'm not going to go through a massive variations mm -hmm. here. But the idea, right? Knight C six E five. Whoa. Okay. So Bishop G five check. This is a clearance sacrifice of its own. He needs the second rank, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. This game can teach us a few big chess words, you know, clearance, interference, <laughs> check it out. Oh, those rhyme. I, I should write a rap about this song. So F6, allowing some communication in Black's position to defend the king, right? Um, and that's like the most, one of the most classic defensive tactics in all of chess is moving your F pawn so your pieces can get to your king. Um, F6, pop, that center pawn, keep an eye on it. It may seem like really beside the point. Like, why wasn't he trying to take on f6 at some point? Mm -hmm. He has to retreat and give up the knight as well. Ooh, but there's pressure everywhere. <laughs> knight d8 to cover e6. He threatens 
just a little rook g7, right? The basic thing he wanted to do, but here's the point. You've cleared your seventh rank with f6, right? Bishop g5 and f6. You're a genius. No! <laughs> E7 right in the middle, just it's done. It's done. It's one of those moves you just push with your pinky across the <laughs> with your pinky. <laughs> your pinky. <laughs> I think that's a move. I would pick it up and hit the pawn on the board so hard all the other pieces jump off and there's just the pawn left. Yeah. Do it your talks etiquette. And there's a lot of uh, endgame studies like this, honestly, right? Where you put the pawn and then they both takes ruin you. Yeah. So it's an endgame study in the middle game. Yeah, an endgame yeah, study in, in interference the game. Yeah. Interference, right? Perseverance, and uh, he just breaks <laughs> black apart here. Perseverance. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> anyway, d7, it goes on a few more moves. He takes with the rook. If he took with the bishop, it was just rook g7. Yeah, he takes with the rook, and now he can't recapture on e6 because the queen is overworked. Mm -hmm. We could probably use every chess tactic word in this one game. <laughs> all, all those, all those words. Yeah, throws this in, but um, unfortunately, there's no end game required. You know, White's just White's just winning. Mm -hmm. Right, since rook d8, and that was the end of that. All right. I'm sorry there wasn't an endgame. It could have been... Uh, that was a good game, boss. Maybe. That was a good game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, it, it's a good game. I mean, and it, it speaks to my point that there's dozens of dudes out there who are producing art at this point. Like mm -hmm. high-class, top-tier works of art. I yeah. saw that game, and I was like, there's a lot of open Sicilians in which a lot of dudes got slaughtered pretty, pretty bad, right? And I looked at three tall games where he just eviscerates people in open Sicilians. But this game electrified me a little bit more. So, there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great game. Yeah, Komov, I think, very kind of like unknown player. I couldn't tell anything about him. I've seen a couple of his games, um, you know, where he loses probably. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's uh, that a fantastic game. Um, okay. Going to my number five. Um, all right, I've got a a repeat, but I guess we'll we'll play through it. And um, that's the game, uh, Fisher Spassky game six. I think this is our first threepeat of the first day. First triple. First triple. <laughs> nice. Um, so yeah, we, we already said a lot about this game, so I'll just briefly play through it and um, just say a couple words. I mean, for me, this is one of the one of the best games of like the world championship um that they had i think it's one of fisher's best games you guys mentioned it's also just like you know not playing in his usual style like fisher was known to be an e4 player playing Rui lopez open sicilian like being very um aggressive and attacking you could also win a couple end games here and there but this game is just like yeah just like a strategic um masterpiece uh, i particularly like just to trade knight for you know he trades good knight against bad bishop improves black structure and then goes e4 to, to crack all the light squares and yeah once again shows like the power of the bishop against the knight and um yeah eventually breaks through here with f5 um just like complete domination all over the board poor knight 
and uh, yeah, eventually, eventually breaks through with a very, um, very I, yeah. Also, there's a lot of. I mean, this this game can be studied um, for quite a bit. Like Fisher's just is complete boa constrictor in this game, um, and then eventually wins with just like very simple exchange sack to open up blacks. Yeah, there are a lot of tactics behind it too. Even though it's mostly a strategic game, but like where he plays. Queen e4 here, Kostya. If rook e6, he's got rook f8 mate. Right. That's mm -hmm. that's a nice little nice little detail in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, after this game, it's um, well known that the audience applauded. Spassky got up and uh, applauded, which is <laughs> kind of amazing. Uh, and Fisher was even like, Fisher was touched by Spassky's sportsmanship he's like wow i can't believe he also applauded for this game um so yeah yeah true uh, epic game epic story um and the fact that it was played in you know one of the most important world championships ever i, I feel like yeah it just makes it a top five game for me um let me go to number four yeah i think it's um another another repeat um but this game for me is uh is really cool it's the game uh, Geller Oive, 1953. Okay. Um, this was on David's list of number number eight. Um, let me find it here. So, yeah, a couple things about this game and why I really wanted to include it on my list. I wasn't sure if it was going to be top five or not. I knew for sure a top ten pick. Um, but uh, number one, when we think about all the best games, it's usually like attacking brilliancies. Like that's the one, those are the games that often stick with us and are flashy. But this one's like a defensive brilliancy. This is just like one of the greatest like defensive efforts of all time. And um, Oive, I think, is a player that's maybe a bit underappreciated uh, by chess fans. He doesn't have a ton of like flashy wins. And Geller, I should say, is an incredible attacking player. Um, He's just like one of the best attacking players of this period. He's got so many fantastic games. Yeah, he like you know he beat Fisher multiple times. I think he even had like a plus score against Fisher, like one of the few players that did. Um, basically, like made it all the world champions at some point. And uh, yeah, here he like builds up this huge attack and uh, like sameish Nimzo sacrifices a pawn for uh, you know very very strong uh, compensation. And then Oive plays it perfectly. Like this move B five. Is uh, is fantastic, creating counterplay just in time um, to uh, to deal with with White's attack. And um, anyway, the attack continues. E five is kind of a, a sacrifice here to open things up. Queen takes D three. The queen is now ready to come in. Takes King F seven. Bishop H. It looks like. Uh, White's getting made. Actually, I should really flip the board. It, it looks like White's the one that's giving mate here. I mean, it just looks like. Black is busted, but here comes just, uh, yeah, incredible move, Rook H8, probably the one this game is most known for. Sacrificing the Rook in order to get Black's other Rook to the C2 square, which was covered by the Queen, and uh, unleash this monster counterplay. And it turns out that White's just not in time. G7 is defended, and um, yeah, the game was over very quickly. Rook C1 takes King F1, Queen B3. And that's it. Black's attack just got their first queen f3, and and uh, Geller had to resign here. So there's like rook g1 check, and um, White's king soon just getting mated. Um, I think there's some people that like to point out like, oh, it wasn't a perfect, 
game. If White had played d5 here, he could have he could have saved the position. You know, he didn't find the best defense. It's still a brilliant game, guys. Okay, shut up, shut up. Right? <laughs> Amazing game. It's not spoiled at all by this. I just think it's fantastic. Uh, anyway, um, and it was playing this incredible 1953 uh, Zurich tournament. So, yeah. You know, when I played when I was playing through this game a week ago, when you first put it on the list, and I was playing through it. As I was playing through it, I, I thought that it was going to be a brilliant win for white. Hmm. Like, even once black was playing rook c2, I was like, oh, white's going to have some way of sort of holding it together and, like, turning their attack back on or something. So it really has some shock value there. Like, I I did not realize that black was the one killing white. So <laughs> I love that about it, you know, that there's the... Nice. Well, yeah, there you have it. I mean, it's no Colmar Bronstein, but uh, you know, pretty good game. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. Uh, number four. Okay. Number four. I've got a repeat here. I've got your Nezhmetinov game here. The Queen Sack game. So I guess now we can show it to yeah, people. Yeah, let me let me get it up. All right. All right. So, uh, a variation of the accelerated dragon that's well known now, but was, you know, newer then, but also somewhat known. Um, and um, in this position here, uh, black plays bishop f6 to parry a possible threat of bishop g5. Defending e7 is one of the toughest tasks for black in this particular line um you don't want to play e6 and weaken your dark squares but the square is very hard to defend against knight d5 and bishop g5 otherwise there's a brilliant eugene perelstein game where he plays a5 rook a6 rook e6 after trading off the bishop on b3 and just covers his e-pawn with the rook on that weird square hmm. um can we just say, though, the, the point of bishop f6 is to get a draw with bishop f6, queen h6, bishop g7. Sure. Because you can't play queen g3. I'll, I'll put queen g3 on the board. So this move we're not allowed to do to get out of things. Um, because I'll leave queen it to the Because queen the takes c3. To, yeah. <laughs> okay. We won't yeah. leave it to the reader. No. C3, and then maybe two. And uh, the queen can't go to a light square like G4 or H3 because of D5. Taking apart the center. So, um, so this was like a theoretical novelty, this move, queen F6, I think. Like this position had been played before, and this was a new idea. Queen F6, and uh, this actually wins one tempo for black. 92 compared to just uh, taking back and playing this position here. So don't be too confused by this, people. See right, and we should, we should stress the reason is because the bishop wants to go to d4 anyway. Right, the bishop wants to go to d4 anyway. The knight wants to go to d5 anyway. So this 92, it's actually clever. It's drawing one of the white pieces away from where it wants to be. Right. But Nezhmetinev's concept here is that these two minor pieces are going to outperform the queen 
largely because of long-term dark square weaknesses. David, uh, let me jump in. I guess we can co-commentate this because it's on my yeah. list too. Um, it's a fascinating position for me. Um, and one, I was lucky enough to look at a lot with human eyes before I turn on the computer. And I've also looked at it before the computer with a bunch of students as well. And a really fascinating question to ask people is, and yourself, what do you think the evaluation is here? And most people, at least at first glance, don't believe in the white position. If at most they'll say, well, white has compensation. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing, it's stunning to me even now, is that I think it's actually over. I think it's actually over. <laughs> Even saying it now, I'm like, really, boss? It's over? No, I think it's over. And it's a very interesting fact that <laughs> it's an over. And it, by the way, for it to be a great game, it doesn't need to be over here. It doesn't need no. to be like objectively over. I don't think Dude understood necessarily that it was objectively over. But what's interesting here is that Black is not able to fight on the dark squares and of course they're down in development and so let's take it away david so i just want to say that's it's it's completely stunning to me yeah now i used this game in the training program mm -hmm. i i took this position for one of the middle game sparring positions because i thought it you know makes oh your, your mic's really a little different. quiet david sorry my mic's a little quiet now yeah your mic's a little quiet you're, you're okay now. You're, you're doing all right now. That's good. That's better. That's fine. Okay. <clears throat> so I put it in the training program uh, so people could practice playing a, a different kind of position, right? So it's in our middle game sparring uh, at the moment. Um, nice. And I think it has you practice some really different skills than what you would do in any other random, like, oh, here's a different pawn structure. See if you can find which file to open, right? Now it's like, oh, here's <laughs> chaos. What what are you doing when when everybody's throwing pieces around? Um, so I think it's super interesting and original and, uh, in, in the sequel, you'll see that the game remains exciting as well. Oh yeah. Knight D5 going after F6, Bishop D4. Okay. Black tries to hold their one dark square. I think an interesting question, Jesse, is what if black played F5 trying to blow open files for the rooks, right? It's against the, the theory of, you know, watch out for your dark squares. Mm-hmm. Um, just completely saying like, you know, okay, whatever. I won't, I won't defend any dark squares, but maybe the rooks could get good enough that you could sack back and exchange at some point and save yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, I think one of the main things that Chernikov tries to do later in this game is get in an exchange sack to stop himself. You know, there's, um, there's this amazing position. I love it where he goes rook c8. Well, we'll see. Go, go ahead. We'll, we'll get there. <laughs> we're going to okay. see. We're going to see. We'll get there. So, okay, so they fight over um, F6. Nezhmetinov just develops his rook, you know, because development still matters. Brings it up and over. There goes F6. Um, if if queen to D8, then uh, and everything were created on F6, then white would have a pawn up endgame with a weak pawn on D6. Same colored bishops, probably winning. And white could also keep the tension longer. They don't even have to take on F6. So black concedes f6 at this point. Tempos the queen back and then takes. So he's willing to trade everything off and then go rook d1. 
issue E2. Night let's, H7. Let, let, let's just stress briefly the, the 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 point of Bishop E2 is that the rook on F1 is not part of the attack, but the rook on F3 is. Right. So it's not like spending two moves to take a rook instead of one. It's uh, eliminating an attacker. Right. Um. So Nezhmetinov already has plans for the attacker, discovered check, and this move was not played in the game, but folks should know this pattern here. Are you sure about that one, Bows? Because we have Bishop H5. Oh my goodness. I blundered that when I looked over the game. So it's Rook F7? Rook F7 looks good. And then and then <laughs> what? Oh my god. <laughs> Bishop E6 is, is not, not made or... Sure, but I mean, he's still playing with, with two pieces against the queen. He doesn't have checkmate yet. On bishop here, it's going to be g5 and h4. It's going to keep going. Holy moly. Yeah. Yeah, so let's just say that's an interesting variation that yeah. had dude had to figure out with knight a7. Black probably did not believe it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the other thing is, like, he might have just gone here and played g4. I don't know. Negative. Negative? <laughs> Negative. Okay. <laughs> it's it's mind-boggling. In any case, it's mind-boggling, right? Like, he had to calculate some heavy stuff. It's not like he just walked over black with his pieces. Mm -hmm. King g8. Rook came over here. Rook e5. So, if bishop f1... I remember thinking it would be knight g5 here, Jesse, but maybe that's that's right. That's, that's right. Yeah, knight that's G5. right. Okay. And then it would be rook e5 would transpose to the game. Well, then it's a little. Well, we're gonna see knight f7 that way. But you could just go knight f7 this way. Yeah. Mm, brutal. Rook e5, f4, here. Takes a move to recapture. <laughs> mm. Rook c8. This this is a move I just love. Just nope. Can't have that bishop. <laughs> it's like his his minor pieces are hiding from the opponent's major pieces. So funny. <laughs> just absolute craziness. Here, Black's, I don't know, out of moves or something? What's he planning? Rook c4 to try and... Once, yeah, you got to stop. got to block the bishop. and trade also. a bishop somehow. Yeah, you got to block the bishop. So, knight gets out of the way. Tries to defend f7. But now it's now it's in the realm of what of what mortals know. And there's a famous um, other Spassky-Petrosian game that has the same combination that I considered, but it didn't make top 10. But um, here, here here nice yeah famous pattern and somehow white is up material at the end mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. bishop and knight versus rook and black resigned i mean yeah, what to I'll, add to those I'll, moves i'll what say a couple words moves? about it later too yeah okay all right on to Jesse's number four pick. Yeah, I get to two in a row. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So, my friends, uh, we got Tall Hesht. 
1962. And this one, oh man, this one comes in the category of Gusto. my friend. Oh, I'm not allowed to say it. <laughs> Yeah. I'm not allowed to Definitely say it. not allowed to say it nine times on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm not allowed. All right, here we go, my friends. Yeah, don't worry, everyone. He's not allowed. He's not saying it. <laughs> We're going to start here. Okay. So... Um, both sides playing fairly reasonably here. Typical thing that I can imagine playing as black. And c5, maybe black should have considered knight g6 here. In any case, here it goes. And I want to say this, this game is completely, in a lot of ways, beyond me. Okay? And, <laughs> like, like, is it right or wrong? I don't know. But we're going we're gonna to take it up a notch here. Okay, so here we go. Pop pop queen e5 check to the miserable king c6 now because this is my game it's my rules okay <laughs> it's my game it's my rules you guys want to do it as your game you could do it your way uh i want to say if i was white here i would be completely terrified of queen c3 and there's a variety of move orders in which queen c3 can break me okay so let's just put that out there Knight g6, knight c4. Maybe he planned queen c3, bishop a6. Let's just let's just pause for a second because we're going to need, it's going to get a little hot here. Okay. <laughs> Again, I would be concerned with queen c3. All right. So queen e6 guarding against knight d6. Okay. Now, the problem Black would say to himself is, dude, I'm, I'm threatening b5. Okay, here we go. Tull says, I don't care, Bows. I Not only is black threatening b5, black's threatening knight h4 and castles, either of which would be enough for black to have the advantage. I know, here we go. Bam. <laughs> Bam. Bam. Okay, son, now we got to think. So the knight can't take the bishop because the rook is hanging, but just taking the rook wouldn't be enough in and of itself. We got to say a couple things about this configuration because here it's like we're truly in the dark side here and it. I guess it's about, if, if like in terms of artistry, it's about imagining squares where the king could escape to. Uh, the material advantage, <laughs> it's big. <laughs> we got a big material advantage here. All right, black plays the most sensible move. Rook g8. All right, here it comes. Bishop f5. Oh, no. Oh, no. So if queen c4 will check on e1, and there we have, I guess, what is the visualization that the, the, the king has no squares. And let me just say, even queen c4, it's where I, I want to just do this game. I don't want to go deep. I just want to say, like, just, just let's just <laughs> let it roll over you, my friend, and we'll take it from there. So here we go. Black says, all right, fine. I'm still okay. And the answer is, no, boss, you're not. And I think black is lost, dude. I think black is lost in this position. And uh, stunningly, it's a, what is it? We're looking kind of at a Fisher endgame here. The problem, though, is the rook on g7 is discoordinated, and the black pawns are chumps. 
Now, I'm going to go through this quickly because really the, the full genius has already happened, even though this is definitely genius as well. Oh, man, this is so crude and rude. Mm. And here we're going to say this is technically winning because we have the connected past bonds. We still have to do some work. Uh, but the main job here is done. So this game, in terms of like visualization, gusto. Somehow it's more appropriate if you say it in Spanish than in English. <laughs> <laughs> and like, uh, so so let's just do a couple moves here. So we got C five mildly comprehensible, though like understanding this dynamic is you you have to have some courage now queen a4 yeah not my first move i'm yeah, terrible not I'm, an I'm, obvious follow I, i'm yeah and then okay so you get him to c6 and then so if we're gonna visual we're talking about visualization it's like okay well in return for my queen being a little weird i'm getting the d6 square and now everything is going to be hanging my i'm going to be suffering to b5 suffering to knight h4 suffering queen c3 e5 i don't care about anything bows i care about nothing i care about nothing <laughs> oh dude yeah yeah all right so there it is game number four hmm. game number four maybe you guys Holy are gonna moly yeah it's an incredible game yeah and i i, I mean that game oh go ahead that game really reminds us of some of Tal's fam most famous sayings right i mean mm -hmm. that game encapsulates right they can only take them one at a time when it's like queen and knight are forked, but the bishop's hanging on h4, and like they can only take them one at a time, right? That's one of his quotes. The other is, you know, take your opponent into a deep dark wood where two plus two equals five, or where only one person comes out. You know, uh -huh. it's that game is the deep dark wood, and you can only take one at a time. And then he beats you in a in an end game down a pawn. I mean, whoo, that game has it all. Yeah, and let me ju just say, like, um, th this game's on my list too, and I like, I looked at it um, beforehand, and it's not like a incorrect game. It's not like one of those games where it's like, oh, like the sacrifice is incorrect, like Black was winning, and he, like you messed up. Like, no, actually, it was very, very difficult for Black to to survive this this onslaught. Just like mm -hmm. impossible. Oh, yeah. And anyone that disagrees should just go try playing against Tall themselves. <laughs> they should just go is what they should they do. Should <laughs> play Tall. <laughs> Okay, yeah. number three. Um, this one we could. Uh, this one can be moved around, but this is uh, Fisher as a kid against Burn, usually called the game of the century. A different Burn. A different Burn. Yeah. The brother I am's, I think. The Donald. Also a Grunfeld, right? Mm -hmm. And this one made a huge impression on me. It still does. It's amazing. Uh, Bishop G4. Oh, one sec, one sec. I don't have it up yet. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. We can start from this position, actually. Yeah, go ahead. So, um, in both of these burn games, white makes, let's say, a slight mm, discoordination. And here, Bishop G5 is the move that is a little bit suspect. And now the party really is going to start here. Knight a4, bam. 
Oh no. Oh no. So the first piece of beauty here is that knight a4, knight e4 is surprisingly crushing. Okay. So queen a3, knight c3. Pawn takes. Knight e4. It still seems like white's doing fine. Queen b6. Okay. Goes to flip the board. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Oh, sorry. Okay. That's fine. And white needs to develop. Bishop c4. Knight c3. This game's amazing. Too. I, I, and I, my memory serves the right. Fisher is 14 when this is going down. Mm -hmm. Check to the miserable king. King f1. Bishop e6. Dude. Dude. Bishop e6 is uh, filthy. <laughs> Absolutely filthy. Yeah, dude. All right. So let's just, I mean, there's, we, we could have, I you know, like a lot of these games, I'm not going too in, in depth, but let's just say a couple basic things. If bishop takes e6, we have queen b5. Let's do a quick smothered mate, actually. Just, just fit in a quick smothered mate. Let's just do a quick smothered mate, my friends. So um, that's the problem there. If queen takes c3, we have this nasty little problem. So bishop takes b6. Check to the miserable king. Check to the miserable king. Let's take a pawn. Let's go back. Let's move it around. And now let's just say you're done. Minor pieces. Done. Yeah, rook on h1's out. Amazing. With Amazing. tempo capturing towards the center. Yeah, I just it's like which rook is more dead, the one on d1 or h1? Bro, not even a, we're not in a hurry here. We're not in a check to the miserable. Oh, dude, take it easy, bro. Take it easy. Oh man. Ugh. Amazing game, dude. Amazing yeah. game. Yeah. Woo! I think it was 13. Well, it could be. Yeah. In any case, we're dealing with a very young Fisher. Stunning, dude. Absolutely. And Robert could have learned something from Donald, his brother, and played <laughs> his game out to mate, too. I mean, <laughs> let's let's crown these jewels with the final positions. Yeah, dude. Yeah, what a great game. Okay, there it is, number three. Yeah, yeah this one I definitely don't uh, don't blame you for having on your list. Are you blaming me for some other ones, boss? Is that what you're saying? You've got a lot of Fisher, Jesse. You've got a lot. <laughs> it's a lot of Fisher. I don't know if he's even done with Fisher yet, Kostya. Oh, no. We'll see, boss. We'll see. Anyway, here's what's happening with my list. I'm doing my first rearranging. Okay. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, previously, I had uh, Burn Fisher as uh, number three on my list as well, like Jesse. Uh -huh. um, but as you can see, I've moved everything else down one. And uh, Bogolyubov Alyekhin has gotten bumped. And uh, we're going to put Burn Fisher here at number four. And I'm going to put Mikhail Tal at number three. That, that's, that one game gives you like so much of Mikhail Tal in one game. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. What a game. Yeah. So that's it for me. I'll, I'll put those two in there. Okay. Uh, yeah, for everyone listening, that's the same tall um, hecht game that uh, Jesse just showed. Yeah. 
So I've got the same two games up here as, as Jesse was just talking about. Reverse order. Cool. Right. And by the way, we, we might, I might too, I might uh, change some stuff up. Kosi can as well. We can still, we still have the right to change things. We can be persuaded. Yeah. yeah. I still haven't yet figured out how to get the Fisher Taimanov <laughs> game in here, which I just love for how long it is. Yeah. No, it's, it's tough folks. It's really tough. Um, okay. Um, my number three game. Uh, I'm not sure if either of you guys have it because it was kind of a late addition, um, but I kind of forgot about this game and then just remembered it like at the nick of time. Um, but this game just made such a huge impression on me uh, when I first saw it. it. Like, yeah, I just kind of had to include it. Um, and this is the game, but Vinick Portish from 1968. And on chessgames.com, it's called Bodvinik and paid for, which is funny. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me find the game in our list here. Um, arguably, I could I could move this one around a bit. Maybe third is a little bit little bit high for this game. Um, but okay, of course, Bodvinik was a genius in his own right. He had a number of fantastic and extremely uh, instructive games. Um, Portish was a super, super strong player around this time as well. And uh, yeah, essentially starts off as, a, as an English opening, kind of like reverse Sicilian structure. Um, and, uh, you know, Botvinnik, he, he's known as being a very strategic and kind of like, yeah, like scientific player. But he was also, you know, like a madman sometimes on the board. Like Botvinnik Semislav is super sharp. You play the Winnower French, which is super sharp. Um, here's okay, he's playing like reverse dragon, although it's you could argue a kind of a strategic setup. Um, but anyway, he builds up kind of very um, methodically, and that's kind of amazing that the game ends in in ten moves. Um, but here is where, where the fun begins. All right, so Portish goes knight knight b eight. Okay, strange move, strange move. It's wait, like wait. undeveloping the knight. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm not playing through the game. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. What are you doing, folks? Let me. <laughs> my bad, my bad. It wasn't working. Okay. Let me uh, go back a bit. So we have this English opening, basically reverse Sicilian setup. And uh, yeah, white sets up very nicely. And then here is, is where it begins. So knight b8, um, he's trying to like fix his knight. He wants to put the pawn on c6 and just totally shut down the c-file. Um, of course, it hangs the pawn. But the idea is that if white takes it, then there's going to be bishop c6 uh, trapping the rook. Uh, Bodvinik takes anyway, which uh, shows a lot of cojones, as Jesse would say. Bishop c6, sacks the first exchange, and then rook takes f7. So sacks one rook and then sacks the second rook immediately. Um, Kosti, just, I've never seen this game before. I've never, never seen, seen this game before. But seeing it now, this is this is like a geez Moise here. I mean, I can't. <laughs> Yeah, I oh seen my this game. goodness. Oh no. Yeah. What a what a, yeah. Holy moly. Jeez yeah. Moise. He already gave up a rook and now he's mm. Yeah. And so okay, he didn't take if takes I think you start either with queen b3 or queen c4. Um and queen c4. Queen c4. Queen c4. Mhm. Mm but yeah, the king has to go for a walk. There's no queen d5 or anything because of knight g5. And black is essentially just getting uh, 
busted here. It's bishop. We G5. can't go there. You got to go king g6. Yeah. And then knight h4, I think, is. Well, be careful, boss, because now king f6, and it's a little bit unclear. Oh, okay, okay, fair enough. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember the exact. So I think it's queen e4. Mm-hmm. I remember. I, I, I'm, yeah, and then king f7. Oh my gosh, knight queen. g5, king e7, queen e5, king d7, bishop h3. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Bows. There you go. So I think that yeah, that's a key line. <laughs> I think that's no, no, that, eight, you're like okay, well now I got clear. That's coming. fair. We, there's a lot of games yeah. to look at. You know, I didn't have time to yeah, yeah, fair. <laughs> remember all the details. No, no, but I, I'm glad you pointed that out um, because it's uh, it's not easy to play like this. It's not like it's just a matter of boom, boom, boom. But um, no, I mean H6? that's that's mm -hmm. that's like that's so many moves after when you have to play rook takes c7, getting the first rook trapped. Right. I mean, that's really the point. Yeah, is that it starts from here, where it's it's not like yeah, you just take the pawn, bitch. Oh, now what? <laughs> now what? <laughs> um, so so h six covers the g five square, rook goes to b seven, and now white just has a he sacked the exchange, but he has um, two pawns and all the light squares. So now it's just more than more than full compensation. Knight h four. Jeez, Louise, mm -hmm. leaving the rook hanging again. Again, yep. This time, Portish, he's had enough. He just, he's just like, just end it. He's just going to set up bishop e4 and say, you're stuck, boss? Yeah. Bishop d6, and, um... And oh! he resigns. Good God! Yeah. <laughs> Good oh, God. my Lord! Takes, let's check. And, uh... You can take the queen. There's knight g4 also. Yeah, knight g4 first. Why not? Yeah. Why not? And uh, oh, I think this is just—it's uh, almost made. But yeah, this is just completely over. So yeah, right. I mean, okay. I think David's reaction kind of speaks for itself. <laughs> uh, that was kind of my reaction for as weeks a for Portish. Nightmares <laughs> for weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um. um yeah, there you have it. I remember seeing this game when I was a young kid. There, you know, our coach was showing it in class. I think we were trying to like guess the move at some point. Um, we all guessed rook takes c7, and then the rest of the moves were a little, a little harder. <laughs> well, rook c7 is a bad guess if you don't see the follow up. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I negative points for that. Yeah, we all saw this one, but um, yeah. So for me, this is just so elegant, and uh, yeah. Um, a deserving, deserving spot for, for Bavinik. When oh. you see knight b8, you're like, that looks a little suspicious, but I, I don't think that's enough to find the continuation. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, it's just, uh, it's so easy to, of course, believe the opponent and not, now kind of go into it. Um, but okay, it looks like I got the, the number two pick. Um... This is a game. This is another game I'm not sure if you guys have on your list, but it's uh, this game I think maybe a little more famous. Um, let me get the, the year. And yeah, this is the game Geller Pano, 1955. Uh, and for me, okay, the most incredible thing about this, it's an incredible game, but the most incredible thing about the game 
is the uh, the story behind it. Um, so some people might be familiar with this one. Let me bring the board up. Uh, essentially, this game was played in Argentina in 1955, and it was uh, interzonal tournaments. And the story of this game is um, Geller is playing against Pano, who's an Argentinian player uh, playing the Nidorf. Another Argentinian player, Nidorf, was there <laughs> as well, playing black. Um, and um, a third player, it's escaping me right now. But basically, these three Argentinian players, they all prepare the same line of the Nidorf against this like super sharp bishop g5 variation. And playing white against them is three Soviet players. You have Geller, Keres, and Spassky. So you have Geller, Keres, and Spassky against uh, Nidorf, Pano, and, uh, and one other dude. And they all blitz out this new idea, g5. Now this is like very thematic shot in, in the Nidorf, uh, this is g5 thing. But back then, okay, it's pretty fresh. And so they have the same position on all three boards in this like super important interzonal tournament. And you have three Soviet players. It's just like, what, what is this? And um, the funniest thing, so it's Geller, Karas, and Spassky. Spassky's pretty good. Karas is pretty good. But apparently those two waited until Geller moved so they could see what he would do and then copied him. <laughs> so like, Let's see what Geller does. Because Geller, I mean, he's an attacking genius. He's, he has so many instructive games. And then he straight up refutes it. He finds takes. Knight d7. Now the point is, okay, black wants to take over the dark squares, and if bishop g5 happens, knight e5, white's just going to be worse, maybe lost even. Knight takes e6, sacrifices a piece. Queen h5 check, king f8. And uh, yeah, now, great time, YouTube, guess the move. Bishop b5. Which is just crazy. <laughs> just like, what? What an insane move. Um, the point, I looked this one up because I, I, I couldn't remember, but the idea is white needs to clear this f1 square for the rook to get the rook in. But the main idea is that, let's say black goes king g7 here, um, rook f1, or maybe castles, knight e5. White's idea would be bishop to g3, threatening to take and coming with mate. And now if black could play knight d7 or knight c6 here, which black could if the bishop was literally on any other square, Black would be fine, but the fact that the bishop is on b5 is super important. Is now knight c6, white just takes it. Same on knight d7, then takes here, and it's gonna be mate. Yeah. So I played bishop c4 as white once, and so black could play knight e5, knight c6, and I lost. There was just uh, nothing to do. Uh, you have to play bishop b5. So bishop b5, I mean, like, yeah, finds this um, over the board. You know, and I think, uh, yeah, all three games continued this way. They're like, wow, Geller, great idea. <laughs> and they, uh, they, all, they all won. Uh, Geller, I think, wins in, in nice fashion here. Uh, hunting the king down. And um, I mean, yeah, just like fantastic game if you just saw it, you know, as is. But just the fact that it was like prepared and it's like on three important boards and... Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like the this era's equivalent of the Capablanca Marshall game, where Marshall prepares a Marshall gamut for right. uh, years and years, and then Capablanca defeats it over the board. Um, so yeah, number two game for me, just incredible all-around um, effort here. Plus he scored three points. 
<laughs> yeah, you'll have to score three points in for a single game. That's, that's Before amazing. the whole soccer scoring system got introduced 50 years <laughs> later. Yeah. Wow. Okay, there you have it. Nice. Nice. There's just way too many games, folks. I mean, like I was reminded when you showed that other game, I was reminded of the Averbach Kotov game. I played over it in the background while Jesse was talking about something. And that game also was like, whoa. Let's see what I've got for number two at the moment. I have number two. Nope, not there. Got so many games open all over the place. Ah! Only thing you had to do, Bruce, was be ready with your own game. Yeah. Oh, it's just a repeat. That's easy. Oh, I saw it highlighted. You guys might be shocked <laughs> by this. No, no, no. Maybe, maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm unevolved to pick a game that's 20, 30 years older than some of Fisher's games. But um, the Botvinik Kappa game, did you show the whole game yet, Kosia? I, didn't, I don't think I showed any of it. No, we show let it me, now uh, in that case. Yeah, let me get to it. Um, mm -hmm, this ready? game's incredible to me. Um, and one of the things... I'm Can I just jump ahead to a certain point to make my biggest point about the game? Is that mm -hmm. all right? Yeah. Okay. So I just want to go to... Yeah, it's to... your game this point it's here your game boss rookie eight okay this position here okay so white has sacrificed the queen side shall we say they sacrificed the b3 outpost he sacrificed the a4 pawn in order to play you know e5 f4 f5 um you know with the king side attack but you know capablanca saw the danger coming and he plays f5 himself right before white can play f5 Right? He plays f5 himself. So he doesn't just get steamrolled, right? Like It's not like a locked position where you just walk two pieces to g7 and the opponent has no piece to defend, right? He puts up a defense. The e-file gets opened. So white's looking to attack on the f-file now with f5. So he trades him, brings him to the e-file, and he says, yeah, let's just take all the rooks off. How are you going to checkmate me, dog? Right? Like You've got this terrible bishop on b2. A knight on g3 that's still under the influence of a, of, a, of a dominator on g6. And we're taking all the rooks off. So what gives? This move here is phenomenal. And there's a term from Go, which is Aji. And to me, this game shows that Aji does exist in chess. And so... In, in Go, the idea of Aji is that you can have some stones that have been encircled, and no matter what you do with them, they'll be captured. Like, they can't make two eyes. They can't escape to another group. They've been sort of surrounded but not yet taken off the board. Okay? But the idea of, of Aji is that while they're still there, they're still providing some tactical influence. In other words, you could have some dead pieces that are still doing a little something for you before they die. I don't know mm -hmm. if you guys know the Vachela Grav Rook H8, Rook H7 game. That's a modern game. Yeah, it's uh, penciled in for next week. <laughs> That's an insane game with a dead piece, right? Yeah. Like just an absolutely dead piece. Um, so what's interesting to me here about this concept 
is this like E6 pawn, right? He creates this isolated E6 pawn, which at first glance looks weak, right? I mean, it looks like black's queen, knight, and king are all in position to round up that pawn. And how is white defending that pawn? The bishop can't do it. The knight on G3 is completely dead, right? He just he just gave up on on challenging G6 for that knight. I mean, it really looks like white's position is kind of dead at this point. Um, and, you know, you could imagine, give black a move or two, put their queen on e7, or their queen on d6, king on e7, and you're, you're done. You know, they wrap up the pawn, and, uh, you go home. So, the concept that he was going to deal with Capablanca draining the life out of the game with this move here, which is so dynamic, um, is just phenomenal. And now, he takes this e-pawn... Uh, here I think with queen f4, very, very nice move. Black had to spend a move defending the knight. So we'll, we'll, we'll just take it from here, even though the strategic lead up in the game is all very interesting, but we'll take it from here. He's threatening maybe queen c7, maybe queen b8 as kind of ideas in this position, right? And, um, black plays queen e8, which leaves c7 open. A big question is what about queen c6, right? Instead of queen e8. And here, I think the concept is to bring the knight to f5 check. And if takes, you check, right? Your queen gets in, and this is all over. The queen's enough to escort the pawn home. Whether the king goes to e8 or g8, same same kind of deal. Um, the pawn just, just goes. The king goes to the back rank. First of all, no g8 because of knight e7. So if the king goes like here... Um, I was thinking now queen b8, but now I'm seeing queen I'm not 5 maybe? percent sure of it. Qu queen, so maybe queen just queen fine. e5 is better. <laughs> yeah, I remember yesterday I thought maybe queen b8, but this might be simpler right here. Queen b8 is, oh, I see. Okay, yeah, you're right. Queen. Yeah, queen b8, queen e8 now I'm not sure about. But this move, yeah, would do it. So queen f4, so the queen came to e8. He plays queen e5 here because the queen can block on g6. If you go knight f5, it doesn't work. So he goes here. Queen e7. Blockading the e-pawn. Here's the move that the game is famous for. But to me, the rookie six is just the, the concept a couple moves before at that level that he's going to play this position is, is fantastic. Um, the game also, obviously at this point, you guys can see that there's the concept of letting your opponent have an outpost and then making it not matter by playing elsewhere, right? The idea of like, and often now when you see a potential outpost, you ask yourself, well, but can the opponent sort of move away from it? Like, like, or is my knight going to be sort of stuck off to the side or is it going to dominate? Um, so bishop a3, the point knight h5, mm. the black queen's no longer covering the knight. He gets in and, and then just that e-pawn, right? The dead e-pawn and it just promotes and finishes the game. So he gets checked some, but yeah, there's no way. No stopping queen f8. I don't know. To me, that game is just unbelievable. Um, yeah. So and let me there you just go. show one more detail as well that yeah. I always loved. Um, if queen g6 check, then white just goes for the end game. <laughs> I mean, has to, but I just love that it would be. That like the this. knight on b3. Yeah, it's just. 
Done. Loses to the isolated E-pawn. Yeah. And the king is like, you know, covers F7. So it's just all, it just works out beautifully. Yeah, that's a beautiful position too. Okay. All right, Jesse, you can make fun of me now if you want to. No, 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 boss. No, you did. You, well, dude, you've raised your level from the last couple public appearances that you had. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, here we go. So uh, the next two games are games that I've spent a lot of time with, um, analyzing them and thinking about them. We could argue they could be higher or lower or all this stuff but for number two i have tall larson 1965 and let's go take a look this one um again is like something where it's not immediately obvious to me that white was winning and it took me a lot of time before i came to the conclusion that actually black is toast okay so here we come very standard Sicilian stuff. And let's start here. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, a very standard idea in the King's Indian is, of course, first to push the knight on c3 away from d5. Furthermore, with the bishop on d4, black would like to play e5, to prevent the bishop on d4 from being an attacking piece against white's kingside. Okay, so here we go. g5, knight d7, bishop d3. Now, what I want to stress again is we would like to prevent e5. So the following is going to look like an aggressive maneuver, but it has everything to do as well as defense or containing the opponent. So here we go. B4. Now you cannot play E5 yet because then Knight D5 would land on you. Sorry. B4. And we say bows. I have to prevent you from playing E5. So bam. Have my knight bows. And if Black had just played E5 instead of what they played, he would have also played Knight D5. Right. That's what I just said. The knight can't yeah. be allowed to come to D5 for free. So this position, right, I've spent a lot of time with it, and it's not immediately obvious to anybody <laughs> what's happening here. But the beauty of it, and I'm sure Tal didn't know exactly either, but the beauty of it is that first, it's important to see, and Kasparov uses this idea as well, of like the e-file is going to cut the position in two. So the queenside pieces are not going to be able to easily come to the king's defense. And we have to have time to build this attack because our rooks aren't in the game yet. All right, black plays what to me is the most sensible move, f5. Block the bishop off, get the rook on f8, some juice to maybe defend laterally. And then with f5, we can also dream that the queen can someday laterally protect the king as well. The queen must come back to help her man. Check to the miserable bishop. And now this move is just cold, dude. H4, I mean, talk about cojones. We're just like, oh, I got the time, boss. I got the time to play nice. H4. Alpha zero. Alpha zero. Alpha. And black, one of the things too is so uh, impressive to me about games like this is there's so many things black could do. And 
to play a calm move like h4 after you've sacked the house it's really impressive and it speaks to the fact that really what is this about it's like all of my pieces are involved except the rook on h1 let's get him involved okay so here we go one of the amazing another detail i love about this game is with h4 tall understands that after you play bishop b7 which is very natural which is what you want to do as black for the biggest reason bringing the queen back in then and only then bishop f5 is a hell of a drug okay if you did it before i would be able to play knight e5 and take on f5 with the bishop so okay here we go rook f5 rook e7 by the way i've studied this game a lot there's loads of variations i'm not uh you know that aren't there bam rook f4 we dance rook f3 we dance this two-step is sweet yeah <laughs> And now uh, the reason to claim this is a winning position really is not to do so much with the pawns, but the opposite color bishops will mean that I have the initiative on the dark squares and black does not have it on the light squares. It's still a very technical situation though because black is about to get in with d5. If oh, black, oh no, if dark squares, baby. If dark you could squares. remove that d5 pawn, then black would have a fighting chance the extra pawn wouldn't matter too much yeah so the the trick here is if bishop d5 we have rook e8 mm -hmm. now rook f8 we get complete centralization with queen e4 and it's 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 a now a done deal larson kicks a little bit with this but there's not much to be done bishop c5 it's so cruel bam resigned so one thing I'll say, there's a great, of course, there's a lot of great tall games. This to me was very instructive because it, I've looked at it by myself with students and um, there's so many different variations. And so there's an intuitive factor about it. And there is also like some deep tactical work that needs to be done to understand this. And maybe the best thing I like about it is what's not really seen is that really knight d5 has a preventative measure about it that we are preventing e5 which would block once let's just say there's a million sicilians where black gets the knight on e5 and then just goes to sleep there's nothing to be done after the knight gets d5 okay i have one more game we have already Beautiful. talked about it and it is a repeat that is our friend here nejmet dinov chernikov wow this game is stunning to me surprise pick changed um Change the way I think about chess. Again, like really deep. Um, I like the Pologievsky Nezhmet Dinov game as well, but this game for sure is the one that you know turned my eye, my mind onto something new. Spent a lot of time looking at all the different variations, and uh, gusto definitely has everything. It's got the meme quality, gusto feel, and turning me on to something like intellectually new and powerful. Mm -hmm. Nice. No, fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, that game is that game is something. Um, we you know already showed was... it, so I guess we won't we won't show it again. Right. Right. Yeah. Something I was thinking, Jesse, as you were showing us the Tal Larson game, was, you know, for a moment it flashes through your mind like, is this sound or not? Right after he plays knight d five, and then 
I just think to myself, it would be so sad if I knew what the computer thought of that position. That would be so sad to me. I yeah. like that it feels like an almost like I could spend a year not knowing whether or not it was sound. It seems like there's so much interesting ground there. See, I don't agree with that. To me, it doesn't it doesn't change a lot like what the computer thinks. Either way, like if it's an unsound sack, I, I still think it's cool because it's so difficult. Like we know how hard it is in practice to deal it, with that. It kind wouldn't of downgrade the game to me. It's just I for me, it's like I, I actually love not knowing the answer. It makes like I it gives you that question to to ponder. Mm -hmm. yeah, I really like that it's not clear if it's if it's sound or not. I like that. Yeah. Okay. My number one is um, Spassky versus Fisher. Oh, nice, dude. Okay. <laughs> this is the yeah. first time you haven't said anything ridiculous for your number one, buddy. I all made right. it all the way through, Jesse. <laughs> <laughs> I made it game? all the way through. Well, you don't yet know which one I picked. You might. <laughs> oh, I think I know. All right. I'll I'm... be surprised if I, if I got it wrong. I'm still scared that you're going to. Oh, I say. Let me say before before the show, um, David linked a game, and I thought he linked by or by accident like game two of this match, and that was going to be like one of his best games. The game where Fisher <laughs> did not show up and forfeited the game. I thought he was going to be like, you know, this in is chess like games, it's called unorthodox opening or something like that. <laughs> like they like they put the game in so that the match would be complete, even though there's no moves to it. Nah. It was just like Fisher Spassky, you know. I'm worried. You know, now, whatever, man. one zero, like unorthodox zero I'm one. Sorry, I'm sorry. I take I I take back my lack of anxiety. My anxiety level has gone up through the roof, Dave. Just get it over with, buddy. Rip okay. off that, Dave. What are you gonna do to us? Okay, so this is um, I think game eight from the match, maybe. Um, Fisher plays yet another new concept. Aljekin's yeah, openings. Oh, sorry. I, I just switched to it. So if you want to back okay. it up a bit. Yeah. Okay. I'm not very far. I'm going to like move three. Is that okay? Mm -hmm. All right. Um, all right. Uh, so, Aljekin's opening. I don't understand this thing at all. I don't, I don't know what, it, what, what this opening is. A5. Well, can, we, can we just say you're a weird dude? Like... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what happened to you as a child, Baos? What happened? What happened? Okay, keep, keep going. Keep going. I, I don't know. I mean, as a child, I was loved. My parents said really nice things about me. <laughs> they didn't tell me I was weird. Uh, maybe that's where it was wrong. huh? <laughs> maybe that's where it all went wrong. They told me to only compare myself to myself and not to other people. Uh-huh. Oh dear. I mean, look, like there's a strong influence in the games that I've preferred of games that I can't understand and couldn't play myself. Okay. So, All right, well, go ahead, take us through it. That means I may it. be misunderstanding the, their greatness, and maybe they're not great to people who know how to play in that style. I mean, it's, it's not a bad game. Tell, tell us, yeah, walk us through and tell us what moments really drew you to this thing. Okay. Well, it's like, First of all, I don't play much, you know, modern or Pierce or Aljechin or openings of that sort, right? King's Indian defenses. I don't play it much. Um, 
so when you're in a situation like this and you're basically on your your own first two ranks, you know, maybe the knight's okay on b6, maybe you're ne- going to need to make space for it on c8 really soon, you know, you're not sure. And you have to find some little purchase on the game, right? Like what are we what are we trying to do? Okay, I understand sometimes you play d6, sometimes c5 trying to just sort of trade off some pawns and and clear things up. Um but here he he pokes with a5 looking at a4 on white's bishop. If I were white I don't know. I would consider c3 and moving the bishop to c2. But he goes a4. And then Fisher just latches onto that a pawn. Right? Whew. Maneuvers that knight. Found a square from b8. Kosti did a fancy little thing in one of his blitz games today, Jesse, where he played a6 threatening b5. And then when his opponent played a4, he played a6 to a5. And then played knight a6, and his knight was a god. Actually, he went through c6, but same same thing. Now, I will um, say this, David. Like, okay, so this game doesn't, it wouldn't, I mean, it's, I, I, one of the things I want to, I like about this one, even though I, it's still incomprehensible. Did <laughs> you put it as number one? But I, what I do like about it is this is, queen e8 is balls of steel, and the next move is balls of steel. And then what you said earlier, still resonates with that this match dude is doing something different every game not just the opening yeah but like some kind of new intuition about the way the game is played yeah it's because i can guarantee you with game. with dude here with, with spasky he's going to play 94 and he's going to say well boss i'm bringing my pieces towards your king right guaranteed and he's yeah. like you want to take my pawn fine i don't care I don't care. Yeah, I mean, he's probably pawn. thinking there's no way dude's going to take my pawn. He's probably like, you're going to trade off my knight before it gets to your king, or you're going to trade off my bishop before okay. it like yeah. pressures your king. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I bet knight a4 was like, he was just thinking between knight e4 and knight b3, like 49% chance on each of those moves. Like, okay. Yeah. I, I mean, this, this is just, just crazy. He just takes his pawn. Um, so Spassky decides for you know, attack on the dark squares on the king side by giving up the bishop. Overprotects e5. Says, give up some more dark squares for me just in case I need them in my pocket later, right? And Fisher's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to queen that a pawn. I don't mind moving. <laughs> um, this is this is an insane battle. And I think it's, it's the only game on any of our lists that's kind of... Uh, Porch noise style, right? That's just like you win via provocation and dour defense, right? We've got the counterattack game, which is which is fabulous, right? From Ilva. We've got the counterattack game, but this is like a pure defense wins kind of game, right? I mean, he he takes this huge risk. And um, I'm very bad at playing games like this, but I do also use the idea in my own chess of of provoking the opponent, you know, well, putting okay, some pressure but on them to deliver. I was trying to a slightly different narrative. Yes, the pawn's important, but I think the, the biggest claim, and we're going to see it in the next couple moves, is light squares, right? So we have the unopposed light square bishop. Mm-hmm. The pawn is cool, but the light squares are more crucial. In particular, we're saying that without the light squares, you're not going to mate me. But also, we right. might start killing you on the light squares. And this, yeah, talk I, about provocation. This move, Bishop F5, is holy moly provocation. Right. 
So check. Oh, yeah. Boom, boom. Oh, no. One of, the oh, things no. This, one of the things this game has, Jesse, which I love in chess, is when the players disagree on something, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they are disagreeing. Spassky is saying advance your A-pawn. Fisher says, I want to advance my A-pawn, right? Spot, earlier, Spassky says, there's no way you want to eat my A-pawn. Fisher says, oh, I do want to eat your A-pawn, right? <laughs> then he says, Fisher says, advance your kingside pawns, <laughs> you know? there's this there's this clash here right and that's my favorite thing about chess is the clash you know when you have a different idea than somebody else and you just argue i like to argue unfettered and most people don't want to argue (laughs) most people just want me to shut up you know yeah 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 they're like let's agree to disagree no let's find out who's right (laughs) let's advance our understanding a tiny little step you know so here fisher and spassky are in pursuit of advancing your understanding in this game there and something's going to be understood so spassky says yeah g you wanted me to play g4 i wanted to play all of this fisher's queen finds a new purchase on the first rank i mean he's playing this game off of off of nothing he's just on his back it's like, um, I mean, I don't watch much of it, but you know those um, mixed martial arts kind of battles where there's a position where someone just sort of lies on their back and they can defend for a while against getting killed? Uh-huh. Yeah, Fisher's kind of in that kind of position here. Jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu is one of the, yeah, I mean, you can, you can use what you want to, right? But jiu-jitsu is one of the main schools of that. Okay, so... Yeah. I think Spassky was ready to play e6 if Bobby didn't. Well, he wanted f5, but queen c3 prevented knight c4. Sorry, say that again, Jesse? So if you go back, I think f5 would be our first thought, but then knight c4 gives, I think, at least that's the intention, gives Mm -hmm. black reason to hope he's not, not, might not be totally lost. Yeah. Yeah. So here, if knight c4, you think there's some hop for d4? Well, I think what's nice about the next, well, I think there's also your bishop's unprotected. So e6 will um, take away the light squares completely. Mm-hmm. And now I think he's positionally winning. Um, yeah, it is. Okay, David, I, you know. Uh, odd pick, but I, I'm starting. I, I at least appreciate where you're coming from. Okay, yeah. this match, okay. too, man. This match is really like. Mm. So here we get the trade, and we go to the opposite colored bishop endgame. Mm-hmm. Fisher takes the dark squares. Got a real turtle look to him. Spassy says, "No, you're never getting the dark squares." And this position here is epic too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, obviously the A pawn is strong, but there's still there's counterplay. There's the D pawn, and mm. there's this and th- there's this cracking you, and mm. space still matters in the end game. I mean, Jesse, you once gave us this end game and end game sensei, and after we talked about the pluses and minuses and, and stuff, you said neither of you mentioned space for the king. Black mm, just right, needs right. an extra square for their king so it can stay out of the way of their other pieces. You know, right, they need a right. little more space for the king. So that could be said about this black king, right? 
in a complicated, in a very simple position, okay, maybe it wouldn't matter. You'd push your pass pawn, but this is complicated enough that the king's really an issue. And this end game, also the calculations at the end, it has a calculation phase that's crazy, right? Because he goes for queening this pawn. And, you know, Fisher's essentially sacked in exchange at this point by letting that pawn get as far as it is. He has to make a route out for the king or he would have been mated. There goes his bishop. On d5, right? And now he's playing with a couple pawns against these against this bishop. Mm. White makes counterplay again. That's the other thing about this game. Like at no point does Spassky stop stop fighting this game. It's not just, you know, somebody versus NN. This is not a roadkill game. And now we've got the race of the H and the G pawns. And I mean, you could think how long you could analyze all this. Now he's down his rook, and it's just pawns against the opponent's rook. King has to get across. I think this is the only winning move here. Wow. Which is on its own kind of insane because it's the only way to get the king out of the box to cross over. I think is you have to sack that in order to then be able to use the F pawn with the king. Damn. Yeah. Come on. That's that's a good that game, dude. That's a good game. Multitudes. Yes. It's epic. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I um, I've definitely seen this thing before. I remember this end game with the rook on g8, bishop on f8. Like it was very very cool. I definitely didn't appreciate this game as much as the other ones. So I'll I'll have mm -hmm. to look at Fair it. Fair enough. Uh, I'll have to look at it deeper. Um, Fair enough. Okay, you guys ready? I'll just say what it has going for it is like Spassky fighting, right? Like you you don't know for sure that Bobby's winning at any point. Yeah. No. True. Um, okay, so look, my number one pick, it's very hard, you know, it's like, there's, uh, there's this saying, yeah, I think it's Japanese, maybe I'm going to offend everyone. It's like the tallest trees in the forest get cut down first, something like that. It's like, whatever you put number one is, is always going to draw criticism because you're saying like, this is the greatest game, you know, this game beats out everything else. It's a very hard spot. It's hard to give it to just one game. But I feel like the game needs to be um, deserving. So yeah, I don't love David's pick because it's like, you know, if you pulled a bunch of chess players, fans, coaches, like, oh, what's the best game, 1920, 1972? Not a lot of people are gonna be like, oh yeah, Spassky Fisher, game eight, you know, of course. <laughs> it's like, so it's really hard to just assume that mantle. And Jesse's game, Nezhman Dinah game, I could see some people naming this game off the top of their head. I feel like it has that like, Mm -hmm. that special quality so even though it's much lower for me i don't i definitely don't fully uh, i don't disagree with it as a top choice but for me the number one game i mean it's gosh it's hard to argue you know game of the century it's the game of the century for me burn fisher i just feel like it's a incredible game um we already showed it so you know you don't have to show it uh again but it's like you know it's like bobby's uh you know this first coming it's like he's 13 years old I mean, he's not a superstar yet, but he plays this game that's just like, I mean, insane. It's just like this absolutely insane game. 
uh, it's a gold coin game. You know, they threw gold on the board afterwards because it's so impressive. Um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's hard to say that, you know, this is like a quality game that's much higher quality than, than everything else, but it, it's super high quality. It leaves a very lasting impression. Um, and it's the start of, uh, the start of an era, you know, so it's, it's hard to, um, I think, I think it's deserving of a number one spot. You could put other games as well, but, um, that's the thing that just kind of yeah, comes to mind for me. It's, you know, it's the opera game of, of this period for me, mm. even though I put opera game third, but, <laughs> the last list. <laughs> but for me, this, this is, this is the one. Um, yeah. oh, okay guys, now we have to start tallying. Hey, Kostya, about, about that. Yeah. You recognize the position in my painting? Oh, uh, no, I don't remember. I feel like I saw it before, but <laughs> from here, I can't quite. It's very yeah. small. Oh, wait, well, now it's, I'm on it's, Zoom. It's yes. Burn Fisher. That, that looks it's like Burn Fisher. Yeah, King on F1, Ragoni. Yeah, I see yeah. it now. So oh, Beautiful. It yeah, it is. Time. I mean, it is a famous game. It is a famous game. <laughs> it is famous. <laughs> you know, when when my mom asked me, you know, I described to her what chess players' dreams feel like. You know how, like in your head, you're like, you know, you go to sleep and you and you dream about playing games and analyzing games and stuff, right? But she asked for, you know, what what would be like a position to set up and use, and out of all the games in history, that. Right, and it's the move before bishop e6 is one of the main positions. It's in different places and different states in the game. Um, but um, that's sort of what came to me. So it definitely has the opera game, whatever meme quality to right. it. Um, I love the knight a4 move the most. The queen sack is less shocking to me. Yeah, yeah, knight a4 is sick. Okay, so you're going to tally. I can already see which game is first. Yeah. Actually, if you guys could help me with this, that would save us some time. Sure. Um, Jesse, why don't you say mean things about me while Kosti and I add up points? I was actually just making sure, too, with your game. I was looking this up. This is, is it round 13? It's game 16. Let me just make sure here. Uh, yeah, so this is round 13 in your game. So I'm, I'm going to just write that in there. So what we're doing, folks, is we're essentially um, giving points for our top 10 list and tallying it up. So if a, if a game is a number one pick, it gets 10 points. Number two pick gets nine points all the way down to one point for a number 10 pick. And um, yeah, we're just going to see which game, which games tally up to the highest total score. I'll say this, David. Normally, you, you clearly like to use the most controversial opinion for your pick. <laughs> and sometimes it's just so ridiculous that it sets the internet aflame. And this one, probably some people are going to yell at you, buddy. But I got to say, at least at least I have I have sympathy for this one. At least I have some sympathy. At the, at the least, right, you re help me remember this game. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of these top lists do. I will say this while Kosi is uh, compiling it, like it, uh, especially players who've been around for a while. We've seen these games maybe decades ago, and 
the top lists, people talking about the games helps bring them kind of just resurfaces them. And, and that's what has that's where they have meme like quality, because there's just so many games out there that only a few are going to be able to drift toward the top, right? Drift towards our popular memory, top of our popular memory. Mm -hmm. And I really like that we're doing this by time period, too, because it really lets us get into a period and time where it would be easy to miss a lot of these games if we just did like, you know, the top hundred of all time or whatever we wanted to do, right? Yeah, doing it by time period, I think was a good call because there's too many games. Um, I feel like there's a lot of games for this period already. And next week, folks, yeah. we are going to have to do a part three, which is 1972 to today. I've got well over 20 games like considered for this. So, uh, Kosi, why don't you here. share uh, the 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 tallying that's being and shown? Neither oh, of sure. you wanted neither of you wanted to change anything, right? I think I'm I'm good. I might go back, you know, no. later. <laughs> There's no going back later, boss. This is your final call. <laughs> but this is my final call for now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but here's. Here's the tallies. We're still we're still working on it. I think that's all the overlap games, Kostya. Okay. And now it's just. I think so. Oh yeah, Burn Fisher is gonna win, dude. I'm I'm okay with that. Sometimes you know the dojo wisdom. I love the we this the this collation. Gives us the dojo wisdom and a lot of sometimes the dojo wisdom's better than the individual wisdom. Look at that. That's pretty good. Tall yeah, nice. yeah, not a single Alakine game. Yeah, it was really tough, folks. It was really, really tough because Alakine, he played a lot of his brilliant season in early 20s. But, um, and they were great games. It's just, uh, yeah, it's hard. 10 is a limited number. We can't fit more than 10, you know, into the list, unfortunately. Um, I try to by giving Gligrich some credit, you know, and some stuff, but it's really, it's really tough. Geller Pano is going to beat out Fisher Timonoff. That's right. That could be that year. You blew that one, Kostya. Jeez, Melise. Yeah, I know. I can't believe I ranked it ninth. What kind of idiot would rank Fisher Timonov in ninth <laughs> place? You just have to not understand chess at all. <laughs> I didn't fit it in yet. I feel like I should fit it in somewhere. Oh, no, no. I was, I was roasting Jesse because we put her in the same spot. Well, it wasn't, that wasn't the problem. You did the Geller-Pano <laughs> thing is what threw the whole thing off. Yeah, I think he's Gosh. complaining about Pano. Geller-Pano is a three-point masterpiece. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My biggest issue for, on this list is uh, Jesse's, I think, number seven pick spasky fisher game five like all right okay knight h5 wow okay amazing amazing move but like dude this is like uh 80 fisher here 70 percent. <laughs> well he didn't even no, put in fisher's five. best game i mean come on <laughs> he could have had more <laughs> no game five is for real okay okay well then all right here's our list i think we're done i'm going to read it out for the uh the audio Audience. So in 10th place, the aggregate total, we have Bodvinik Portish, my favorite, with eight. Uh, Geller Pano, okay, my favorite as well, with nine. We got Tall Larson, that was uh, exclusively Jesse's pick, with nine as well. Uh, Geller Oive, uh, two of us picked it, me and, and David. 
so that gets nine points as well. So a bunch of games tied uh, for seventh place. In sixth place, tied for fifth, actually, we have Botvinnik Capablanca and Spassky Fisher, game 13, with, with 10 points. Um, in the fourth spot, we have Fisher Spassky, game six, with 13 points. And then actually a very clear top three, which is kind of surprising, actually. Um, yeah. But maybe not, because these are, I guess these are the only games. Oh, no, we had the t we each had the top four games on all of our lists. Interesting. Yeah. So then we have Tall versus uh, Hecht in third place with 18. And then uh, Nezhmedinov's Immortal in second place with 20. And uh, Burn Fisher, Game of the Century, the total score of 25. And I like this list, dude. Yeah, it's a good list. Some good games. Okay. Yeah, it came out okay. I've got, I I mean, that Botvinnik Portish that, that Kostya showed that I hadn't seen before, that's a game I could see myself, you know, possibly giving an extra point to at some point. And the Fisher-Timonov game that got left off the list. Those are two games that are not up near the top. And I didn't give them any points, so it's my fault they're not up near the top. But I really loved those games. Those, those are nice ones. Yeah, it's tough, folks. But um, you know what to do. A lot of people, actually, they write comments as they're watching because they just can't contain their rage as they uh, hear us going yeah. through our list. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you guys disagree with our list. Um, you know, at least present your own list. That's what really bothers me is people are like, oh, how could you not have this game? Make a full list of 10 games and then we'll see what you leave out, sir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sir. <laughs> um, but there you have it. That's going to do it for, for this week. Um, we're way over, but hopefully folks don't mind. Next week, we're doing part three, the best games from 1972 and on. Uh, it's going to be crazy. We got Karpov, Kasparov, Anand, Kramnik, all the modern players. I mean, it's... It's going to be tough. Um, it's going to be the tough. Fifth They'll best probably. player of all time. Fifth best <laughs> player of all time. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, we're going to do it next week. Thanks, everyone, for, for tuning in. And I'll do it for, for Dojo Talks.